this day, after the time in history when it was founded, we still need communism. <laughs> Before we begin with questions, anything, would you mind just like a quick introduction to yourself um, and your work? Um, well, quick introduction, you know, it's a long history, um, you know, uh, which goes back to, among other things, to uh, my working in an in a electrical manufacturing company in, in market research and discovering that it had absolutely nothing to do with, you know, with the economics I was learning at night, you know, because yeah. uh, I was at night school. And that sort of set me off in to, to have a critical perspective, um, which I did, you know, followed in when I was in grad school at Wisconsin and, um, also, I was involved in, in the writing or you know, section of, of the Port Huron statement of SDS. And then, you know, ultimately went up to, you know, Simon Fraser and New University in Vancouver and um, basically have done a lot of you know, writing since then, mainly theoretical. Um, but also, you know, after I, you know, had done a lot of that, um, uh, I went with uh, my my then you know wife or not yet wife Marta Harnecker, who um, and we were uh, in Venezuela as advisors for about seven years or so. Um, so and that was a really fascinating experience. I sort of felt that everything I had done up to that point was apprenticeship. That's amazing, and I think that's exactly what we're kind of interested in learning more about because we mainly are trying to learn anti-imperialist and Marxist politics from kind of like a, a young person's perspective and engaging with these various projects that have begun a little bit before our time and learning about where they're heading, what their history is, and trying to explain it in a way that's understandable to young Marxists who are learning for the first time about all, all of these different movements and may have heard about the Cuban revolution, but may not know about all the kind of complicated things that go into making a revolution in in human life. And that's what stood out to me in in your essay as very profound was the kind of individual level, but also just the, you know, the personal and popular level that you're writing at. And I I mentioned that I would love to focus and begin by talking about this concept of popular uh, protagonism and as you mentioned as well in the in the essay, the second product of uh, of what Marx discusses in the Kundrisa, so not just a revolution in productive capacity, but also changing man as such and creating a new man, as Che put it. And you know that's something that's intrigued me and all of us and Merrick and and I have had a lot of conversations about it. Of like with the the state of modern revolutions today. Once kind of state power is consolidated, I think Lenin also talks about this in State and Revolution of the concept of once state power is achieved, the revolution has been conducted in, in, in terms of power, the actual capacity of human beings in terms of their, as you emphasize, their relations of productive relations between 
workers and between, you know, people within a workspace as such, how, how to sort of revolutionize that as the next stage of, of conducting a revolution. So that is to say, my question is, you know, what do you see as, as under, as being undertaken right now in Cuba specifically, but you could talk about really any of the, the multiple kind of instances of real existing socialism, or of course that's contentious, but as the, the contentious aspect of that being that what actually changes in human life under something that is proclaimed as socialism in a governmental form in terms of how humans interact with each other is kind of the unsolved mystery of a lot of socialist revolutions. And I'm, I'm very curious to learn about what Cuba has done to try and solve that question, or if anything, to at least try and continue the revolution without falling backwards into the past, as you say, that Che was very concerned about that regression potentially. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I think a problem that is characteristic of what was called real, real socialism, but of many Marxists now, is that they don't understand Marx's capital. Um, that I would argue that one of the central themes in Marx's capital is the question of what kind of people are produced within capitalist relations of production. And over and over again, he stresses, you know, it creates a worker who is fragmented, alienated, um, has, you know, does not recognize, you know, the means of production as anything but alien, uh, other workers as alien, etc. And that it is so, you know, uh, so much that occurring that Marx can in fact say that that capitalism, as it is fully developed, produces a working class which, by you know, tradition, habit, etc., looks upon the needs of capital as self-evident laws. And he also goes on and says, you know, that this is the produce effectively capital produces the workers it needs um, in perpetuity. Um, well, I mean, that's the story of, you know, capital. And also the other part of the story is what are the, the story about productive forces. So many Marxists talk about productive forces develop, et cetera. But if you read capital, you find that, in fact, what Marx is telling you about productive forces is the productive forces that emerge within capitalist relations support and strengthen capitalist relations of production. Productive forces are never neutral. They emerge out of particular relations of production. The same kind of question can be posed in relationship to, you know, real socialism, so-called real socialism, which I talk about in my book on contradictions of real socialism, and that is central to the, that system as it developed was a social contract between, cap, between the, the vanguard uh, the government and and workers, in which the workers received many benefits that were not present in capitalism, such as you know freedom, full employment, uh, subsidized goods, um, etc. In return for yielding the initiative to the top, you know, so that they simply followed um, the regulations, etc. Um, in terms of both the workplace, but also in society. Um, so in that situation, the kind of question is, well, what kind of working class was produced under those circumstances? And the answer is, it's a working class which would not struggle to avoid the resumption of capitalism. That's always the question you always have to ask. Why didn't they struggle against these changes? 
And it has to do with the kind of working class that was produced in that system. That, I think, is important to keep in mind when one looks at what happens in Cuba, uh, because although Cuba has many distinct characteristics which allowed for protagonism, etc., um, it, on the other hand, also had that elements of that social contract, certainly with respect to the workplace. Um, and, and one of the things also, and this, uh, you know, I'll just sort of add this point, which is, whereas Marx talks about how you know, capitalism produces a certain kind of working class, etc. He does, on the other hand, point to what happens when workers struggle, how workers in their activity, you know, change themselves. And that's something, you know, that they transform. He kept coming back to that question. Struggle produces change and produces the working class that can make changes. Um, and, you know, Engels, in, in one of his writings on the 10-hour bill struggle, uh, talked about how the workers who have been involved in that struggle emerge stronger, more confident, um, and more united than they, you know, than they were before. And that's the whole point of protagonism, that protagonism, a collective protagonism, is a process which transforms the working class, and I would argue, is central and necessary for any building of socialism. I think that's some really great points, especially about what kind of working class is being built or what the conditions for um, different classes in society are in these in these new governments and these new systems. Um, and I had a question uh, specifically about, um, do you think that the issue is more of an issue of pedagogy where, you know, how, how people are taught? Marxism, I know you talked a little bit about, you know, like, economists and studying of Marxism, or do you think that it's more of a political issue where parties or governments uh, struggle to implement the right plans or they have a, a misguided interpretation of what effective policy would look like? I don't know whether it's an either or question. There's a question of how, you know, uh, why was Marx interpreted as simply talking about, you know, the only real action is the development of productive forces. It takes you from capitalism to socialism. It takes you from socialism to communism. That seemed, you know, and human beings are not part of that thing. Certainly, bourgeois neoclassical economists have no place in their theories for human development, for the human product, etc. Uh, the idea of anyone changing and developing capacities through their activities is entirely foreign to them. But it's also true of, you know, governments which um, are hesitant to, you know, release power um, and release initiative to those below because they don't really trust them. Um, they, you know, their fear, and I, I use in my book on the uh, real socialism, I use the sort of uh, image in which the conductor is convinced that the only way for the music to come out well is if he has power and if, you know, if he can direct it and if, you know, without me, all would be chaos. Uh, well, I think that is, you know, uh, to, it's sometimes that there's a tendency to say, well, those at the top are only personally oriented, et cetera. They're, they have privilege, et cetera. I think a very important part of this uh, and I saw this not only in Cuba, but also when I was studying Yugoslavia, that I think important part is that people, in fact, really view themselves 
as essential and worry about what will be the results without this directing tendency. Yeah, just to pick up on that as well, I'm, I'm interested in this concept that you had and, and sort of expand upon in the essay of the Guevarista pendulum of the kind of question of a sort of back and forth consistently of whether in reading in reading someone like Che, you have someone who's very clairvoyant about the need for, as as you demonstrated in the essay with his writings about voluntary labor, or even recently, Merrick and I have been talking a bit about Che's writings um, on like international solidarity with his work in the Congo or in Bolivia, his view about, you know, kind of continuing the revolution abroad of someone who's going to drive the revolution forward and, and push to kind of continue, continue the march of progress versus maybe the versus is not the right word to sort of dichotomize it, but this kind of desire to consolidate the revolution to, you know, to kind of keep it where, where it is. And then what was fascinating to me is how you do a comparison of that to other instances where there is a seemingly in countries that have had a revolution, a constant back and forth between one inclination to preserve the key elements of capitalism and to try and use them to build socialism and another that's desiring almost to, you know, undertake this, what I perceive to be some kind of human evolution or some change within our, our relationships. And that, that especially comes about with the conversation around value, of course, like, as you point out the, the Soviet union and, and other instances where there was a, a proclamation that the law of value will be maintained because we can't actually change how the law of value is. Is it almost becomes like a law of human life, and I've I've read a lot of the value form theory kind of critiques of of discussing value as a sort of thing that rules over people, and it is a product of our social relations, a social domination, which I find very compelling as an argument. But I'm curious to sort of I know it's a long winded question, but I found in your in what you drew out from Che a very similar critique coming forward from Walter Rodney, where he wrote some essays that have recently come up and, and been republished, where he's critical of the state of the Tanzanian Ujamaa commune process and the social relations under Nyerere in Tanzania. And he says almost the exact same thing as Che sort of put forward and said, he's, he says, we haven't fundamentally changed the way that workers relate to their managers, we haven't changed the way workers relate to one another. So the revolution is still missing some key human development. And he's talking in Tanzania where he perceives that workers are, are, are still militant, but also not necessarily have changed under the revolution, their relationships with, with their work in particular. So they haven't engaged in, in this voluntary labor. If that is maybe the, the solution. So that, that's a long way of coming to the question of to do these comparative studies and see in instances of of socialism that has been constructed or attempted to be constructed this constant pendulum that can be that can be very clearly seen in Cuba of the back and forth between consolidate the revolution or kind of march forward to this this very lofty human development goal, which I know a lot has been 
written about human development as the key to this question. You know, why does it seem that that that, that lofty goal keeps failing? And we ultimately see a lot of instances where there is regression back to the the more sort of market oriented policies that lead to this this human relationship that is not fundamentally different from that under capitalism. Yeah, well, um, let me just say about Che, um, I always really was attracted to Che's emphasis on the simultaneous development of productive forces and, and you know, socialist consciousness. But when I read um, Helen um, Yaffe's book and closely, I realized that, in fact, that in actual practice, he was introducing these concepts in the workplaces, in the ministry. And that was something I've never seen anybody talk about. And I don't think she brings it out sufficiently herself in the book, but it's there. And that is, a, you know, very important. But, yeah, I don't, <coughs> I don't think there's any inherent pendulum. Um, I, you know, in some places, you know, the pendulum, you know, starts off, you know, as a sort of healthy revolution, and then it goes elsewhere entirely. It doesn't come back. You know, the only way it comes back is through struggle. You know, um, and I definitely think that it's central to emphasize the popular protagonism as a way of strengthening people and building a revolutionary sort of force. One of the things I didn't, well, I just, I guess I did refer to is in Venezuela, one of the things that was so striking was how well, and the extent to which Chavez understood this. Um, and, you know, constantly his emphasis was on the only way to solve poverty is give power to the poor. Um, you know, uh, you want to, you know, sort of get something done, you have to do it yourself. Um, and one of the characteristics of early communal councils, when they emerged from about 2006, I guess it was, yeah, individually uh, put forward projects you know, first of all, the, the, the nature of their organization was extremely democratic. They were based on, you know, uh, 20 to, you know, uh, I guess 100 to 200 families in the urban areas and 20 to 50 in the rural areas. And they, they didn't have officers. They had spokespersons on particular items. So they would speak for the community, but the community would, in fact, be, you know, the decision maker. And so these communities would, in fact, offer you know, a, a project to the, to the government uh, and make the case for it, and then they would get funds to carry it out. So one of the things when we went around to different communal councils in, in different you know, parts of this, the country was they would tell you with pride how they got money to produce 10 houses and how they figured out how to stretch it, you know, to 15 houses you know, and they would do this by changing the organization of the individual houses. You don't need two bathrooms in a small place, you know, so they would remove that, et cetera. And you got that pit position over and over again. Uh, the, the whole emphasis, for example, they would tell you about money they obtained to build the road or, you know, to, to improve the road um, and, and how they had stretched it by various ways, et cetera. 
real pride in their accomplishments. And that emphasis on, on the communal councils was, you know, certainly the initial step because where he wanted to go from there was to bring communal councils together to be larger units uh, by voluntarily engaging in communes. Um, and if you look at Venezuela now, the communes are the healthiest aspect of Venezuela. Um, they're especially in the countryside where they, you know, are engaging in, you know, well, one of the things is they're nationally organizing links between the communes, but also they engage in direct barter transactions, and, you know, and with each other. They expand um, etc. And one of the, the characteristics of, of those um, communes is that um, they are, follow and they have more or less as their slogan what Chavez said in his last public um, uh, cabinet meeting, which was televised, which was he said, um, Nicholas, his vice president now, the president at this point, saying, Nicholas, I, you know, I'm, I'm, well, let me just step back. He said, I've distributed this book about communes in China, and nobody has responded to this book. Uh, haven't you read it, et cetera? And he said, Nicholas, I entrust to you, you know, the, the communes and the, my future, my emphasis, um, and, um, and then he said, Camuno o nada. Uh, communes or nothing. Uh, and that is, in fact, the theme of the communes in the various uh, parts of Venezuela now, which, again, mostly in the countryside, but there is a major well-functioning commune in, in a part of uh, Caracas itself, which has bakeries, which has a television station, uh, all these things communally owned and democratically decided. So I certainly, you know, found in, in, you know, despite the horrors of the situation of Venezuela in terms of corruption and clientelism that was always there, that there was this real building of, of a new kind of person there, as there was in the early days of Cuba. I think um, what you said about Comandante Chavez is a very interesting. Uh, and, you know, the stuff about the communes, uh, it makes me think a lot about um, some things that are happening in Bolivia in certain areas where kind of the opposite thing is happening, unlike in Venezuela, where, you know, Chavez and the party were able to, you know, operate in this very high level capacity, organize people um, in Bolivia and in certain other indigenous areas like in Guatemala. There's more of a like a grassroots organization where, you know, uh, people who historically have worked together, uh, developed like similar communes. Normally, this isn't in a productive force, but uh, normally in a justice or in a uh, like security type aspect. I know in Peru, we have they have uh, ronderos, which are like protective forces for uh, 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 peasant farmers. Um, and I was I wanted to ask, what do you think is the role of the of the party um, in developing these communes and kind of organizing uh, not only the peasantry, but all different classes uh, to be more like uh, this, you know, like the Venezuelan model? Well, I think the party is essential or a party or what Marta used to say, a political instrument is necessary. Give you an example in the, in the communal council in uh, Venezuela, 
uh, as you know, you as these develop um, and you know become more and more engaged in activity, um, they develop a real solidarity among themselves, but not necessarily to the commune or the communal council next to them. Uh, in other words, you know, I, what I talked about in in the book was something about the paradox of protagonism, that it increases solidarity within, but potentially you know creates differences. Outside, in other words, it's the question of well, let's you have a commons. Well, who is entitled to draw upon the commons? Is it the local people? It is it everyone? Well, you can easily see how resentment would occur about people from the outside coming and taking from this commons. Um, so, one of the things that the party can do is link struggles, uh, link show you know, be an instrument which shows the unity of, of activity, etc. Because contradictions are going to inevitably emerge, and a party, at least a party which is, you know, centered from below, as opposed to one which is top-down, the party can, in fact, you know, bring people together in this respect. Because I think there's, you know, one of the issues, um, for example, of, of Cubans who I, I, I used to speak with often uh, was, well, if you have... You know, um, you know, decentralization. How do you avoid, you know, increasing inequality between, say, the countryside and the city? Um, well, I think that you know the argument is you need something to fight inequality, but whether it is the party which is top down is another question. I, I'm interested in picking up on that because I think the the latter part of your essay reflected something that. Merrick and I both kind of experienced and, and I'm very interested in asking a question about it because in last year, in this month, of course, as you referenced at the end, were the, the sort of counter-revolutionary uprisings. Um, and it's interesting to reflect a year later on that because it, like, I remember those, that was a very fascinating period of time to, for us to sort of be Marxist, but be U.S.-based, and particularly in South Florida, which made it very, I mean, you know, we would have friends from high school posting all this stuff about Cuba and, and the need to go and protest, the need for the U.S. to intervene, all that kind of thing. People, people who were even Marxist or leftist were saying, like, we should support, you know, the U.S. intervention or some kind of intervention to change the government and stuff like that. So, it's fascinating to me because you're you're in an interesting and I know that the politics related to the sort of post Cold War period as well in the the special period and then afterwards of you know where does the revolution go without having particularly important of international solidarity and having allies who can support what is needed of hard currency and in the aftermath of that as you as you point out you've seen tourism, you've seen the U.S. dollar regain the initiative in Cuba. So I'm, I'm curious to ask you about, you know, a year later reflecting on the counter-revolutionary uprisings. First of all, let me say with respect to the, you know, response to July 11th last year, um, that I did suggest that there were some changes, um, and, and but it's a mixed bag. Um, at the level of the community, 
there seems to be an understanding that things were not going well in the community, the necessity to focus on the community, that, you know, they have basically failed um, to function, not only in terms of community discussions and initiatives, but also in relationships to, to the, you know, uh, the, the um, committees to say they are, you know, the committees to defense the revolution. That certainly was something I saw as a good sign, uh, but at the same time, there was an increasing focus on the market, the market, the market, uh, and that was the problem because it wasn't extending. There's no way there seemed to be an extension to the workplace of protagonism and decision-making at the bottom. When this year, you know, after uh, one year passed, there was a general celebration of, look, we went through this one year and there's nothing happening right now, so it's we've done the right things, et cetera. That, I think, is an absolute illusion, you know, because things have gotten worse, you know, increasingly worse, um, not only because of the, the uh, problems of, you know, the, you know, the increase in, in inflation, um, and the difficulty of, you know, dropping real wages, but also you know, one of the most significant phenomena are that people, young people and families are leaving in large numbers. Uh, Cuba is losing, you know, uh, a lot of very well-trained, educated young people who have basically decided it's not going to get better. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I stress that, that what was necessary, call, what, call, what could change things, would, would be a major ideological campaign from the top initiating the idea of much more participation in every aspect of the society to give people hope as opposed to them leaving. Uh, apparently, someone estimated that people are leaving. Uh, uh, it costs about ten thousand dollars to, you know, pay a coyote to take you, you know, through the various ways. Uh, generally, starting off in Nicaragua because you can fly there without a, the necessity of a visa, uh, that and then taking you up through, you know, the Central America and Mexico, etc. Ten thousand dollars. Well. Not that many people in Cuba have that, uh, but they are, you know, in this case, being financed by their relatives in the States who, who send them, you know, this money so they can do this, you know, uh, transaction, do this journey. That's interesting because instead of them sending the money to people in this, who are remaining in Cuba to, in many cases, allow them to consume better or as investments in local businesses, like, you know, uh, restaurants, uh, like, you know, uh, tourist facilities, etc., they're now sending the money elsewhere. And so part of that reliance on you know, remittances becomes, you know, increasingly difficult. I, I, I mean, I think the situation in Cuba is really, really difficult at this point, um, more so than I think I indicated in the article. Yeah, I, I think you make a lot of great points about um, people leaving. Um, I know the case is very similar for Venezuela as well. Um, and, you know, when you start talking about immigration and migration, you also think about the international relations. And I and you talked about young people, and I think about the future of, of socialism in, in Latin America, particularly, but in the world, too. Um, you talk a little bit, you talk about, like, 
the various paths that governments could be taking. Um, on one hand, you have, you know, kind of the more reformist Chinese model, which has seen success um, in the material improvement of many people and many classes. Of course, increasing uh, levels of uh, uh, inequality at the same time, you know, not solving all of the issues present. Uh, how do you think that um, these governments, you talk about the need for, you know, uh, a more communal based uh, development of Marxism, but for those governments which are facing these very dire uh, immediate situations like increasing food costs, increasing, uh, you know, uh, exodus of people, of, you know, strong working people which are necessary for the improvement of the nation, um, do you see, uh, do you genuinely see an alternative to that model where it's, you know, more dealings with the West, even in Venezuela, where we see, you know, the in, the kind of informal dollarization. Uh, do you see a, a, a genuine alternative to um, maybe this more reformist China model? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, with respect to China, I don't regard it as, as building socialism. Um, you know, um, the the inequality is, you know, incredible in terms of the billionaires you know, that China has produced, who, the princelings who are, you know, the people on the Central Committee, et cetera, like that. Um, it's it's a really difficult situation. Uh, the general answer I would give is, you know, that certainly there are things that have to be done to deal with economic crises, but are you dealing with, with it in a one-sided way of focusing simply on let us, you know, attract foreign capital, um, et cetera, or are you attempting to build this, you know, uh, by what Che talked about, the simultaneous, you know, uh, building of, of socialist consciousness. Now, when there's no question that in terms of, you know, specific economic advances and bringing in foreign capital that will, you know, help you, you know, uh, sort of through a, a, a difficult period. There's no question that that is a position that is um, counter or that the development of, say, worker decision-making in the workplace, et cetera, is not one that is encouraging foreign capital. But on the other hand, you know, and, and certainly this was a situation which we could see in, in Venezuela in which, you know, the, you know, the emphasis on co, co-management and, and worker decision making was challenged in certain industries because they weren't not, they would not be the efficient decision being made. But the point about these, you know, alternative developments is that they are investments. They have to be seen as investments, you know, because you're investing in building human capacities. You know, if, for example, in a workplace, you know, um, and where they introduce worker management, where you have committees, you know, sort of deciding on analyzing the workplace, seeing very clearly what workers can always see is where there is waste. And, you know, uh, there, you know, that it, when you're doing that, you are, in fact, developing a, a, a new kind of capacity, uh, which is not necessarily in the immediate situation as efficient as you could do it from the top down. I wanted to ask something Eric and I have chatted about as well, which is the the question of racism in Cuba. And you pointed this out in the article about 
you know, the, the persisting racial inequality that does exist. I think that that has become kind of a talking point of counter-revolutionary forces as well to kind of point out and say and allege somehow that the government is racist or that the, you know, there's racism in the in the revolution inherently. But I'm more curious about how this racial inequality persists and also what has been done within the revolution, within ideological advances or within economic advances to try and counteract that, because that is one problem that I, in reading about Cuban learning about it, perceive to persist and and still be something that has to be addressed. Um, and, and whether that's adequately being attacked, I'm not sure. Well, you know, officially, you know, Cuba has fought racism. Um, and that was certainly uh, something that Fidel was very conscious of and, and spoke against on a regular basis. Um, the question is, you know, the 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 coincidence of poverty and race um, that as you get inequality, it necessarily is going to function uh, have a, a stronger impact upon blacks than it is on whites, particularly when one thinks about who can send remittances because you know the the uh, the Cuban population in the United States. It is overwhelmingly white, um, and so they send when they send funds, they're sending to their relatives. There, there are all of these elements, you know, in terms of as inequality grows, as the focus on the market increases, and inequality grows, the burden falls increasingly, or if not the burden, at least the gap becomes obviously increase important in, you know. Um, to to within the society, the thing that I think is is quite interesting is that's one of the reasons why there is a real focus in terms of the community and you know working with marginal communities because when you're talking about marginalized communities, you're talking about people who were very often largely black. Um, so to that is an effort. I think that effort in in the you know response to July 11th. Um, is in fact trying to deal with that question, and I haven't seen you know anybody specifically say this, but you know it's it's been suggested you know hinted that in fact a lot of people who came out on July 11th were in fact black. Um, so that's you know that is there is a response to that, but you know you can try to do something on the community level, but on the other hand going increasingly to the market, you know, is going in a different direction. And certainly, um, I think since the special period, you know, um, the decision was made to focus on tourism. Um, and that was, you know, certainly an initial, you know, response that, but the question is, to what extent has it continued over and over again, each year building, you know, investing in more hotels, you know, um, instead of investing in agriculture, for example. Um, you know, you, you get that when you focus solely on trying to find a way to bring in foreign dollars this way, becoming increasingly dependent on the external, you know, society rather than building up domestically. Yeah, definitely. I think I... I wanted to ask um, 
Uh, we've been talking a lot about race and class. Um, and considering the fact that um, Cuba, uh, you know, has been, you know, over over 50 years uh, con uh, conducting their revolution. Um, and in Venezuela, you know, we're going past, you know, a couple decades. Um, do you think that there is a need to reanalyze the um, the class stratification or the, the class identity and the analysis of class and race uh, in these governments which are developing socialism? Well, I think it's inevitable that if you have a situation in which all the initiative is coming from the, the top and leaving, you know, um, those at the bottom to be beneficiaries of, you know, um, which, are, you know, obtaining gifts, you know, this is something Mark talked about in this thesis on back, you know, which is you don't, you don't change people by changing their circumstances for them. You know, you change them by it, this, this process of simultaneous change. I certainly think that there is, you know, there are serious problems of class, you know, um, when you look at these countries that, you know, focus on decisions made at the top, you know, um, certainly China, you know, if you look at it. And when I, I a number of years ago, I was in uh, Vietnam and, you know, speaking, you know, with my um, translator, uh, who, uh, about the question of, you know, what was the difference between China and Vietnam? Um, and I, I sort of talked about how many, you know, millionaires, et cetera, there were in, in China. And she answered, well, they had a head start. Maybe just like one final thing to touch on that I wanted to ask is just kind of wrapping it up. Where do you perceive the revolution as going? And, and that, that is kind of the question you analyze at the bottom uh, of the essay, but just in a, you know, almost as like in a, in a minute or less kind of answer, like what is the future of the project and what are the, what would you say is the most important challenge facing it right now that has to be answered? Otherwise there is no possibility of the future. Well, my answer always is, you know, class struggle, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, that that's the key. But in the case of Cuba, I, I think it's a little more complicated because I think there is struggle within the leadership of the party. Um, and, and that is reflected in this emphasis on the community that we hear, you know, Diaz-Canel emphasize constantly and talk about, the, you know, the importance of protagonism and complete democracy. And on the other hand, you know, the tendencies that, you know, are reinforced by the economists, you know, projections, but in fact are, you know, really reflect the, the decision making at the top of many of the Cuban industries, which after all are, you know, effectively controlled or owned by, operated by the military, you know, which is, you know, a very substantial part of the, you know, economy, which I didn't talk about in the article. Um, I think it would have been too depressing. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to answer our questions. We both really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it, the discussion. I have to naturally. I'm going to sort of, you know, go off and then say, "Oh, I forgot to say this. I forgot to I say know. this." It's we always, like we always feel the same way at the end of like, there's so much that could be talked about. Yeah.